0: I was away from Wednesday till Friday this past week with some of the guys that meet to study the Bible on a Thursday at lunchtime in here, and uh, we had a fantastic time. Matt and Chris are here this morning. They were on the group. Um, And uh, one of the things we did when we were away, we were away down in a place called Darville in Ayrshire, staying at Scripture Union's. Uh, center there, Gowan Bank, which is a fantastic center. If you're ever looking for a, you know, a center for, to organize an event, a CU event or something like that, you could do much worse than try uh, Scripture Union Gowan Bank, because it's just, it's a home from home, really comfortable, brilliant place. So if you're in CU's and you're looking for a venue for weekends away, there you are. You've had the plug. While we were there, we went out uh, <laughs> like 21 guys, and we went to climb a hill. Yes, we did it. We climbed a hill. We went in a minibus for a 10-minute drive to the car park, and there was the summit, all about, I don't know, 500 feet? (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. I'm not a mountaineer. But before we were allowed onto the path that took us to the foothills of our hill, we had a base camp prep talk. We had the safety brief from Colin, our instructor, who told us how it was going to be, that he would have to go in front, and that Stephen would have to go at the back, and that we'd have to, uh, you know, just be careful because there was a lot of uh, mud on the path and so on. So we had the safety brief, and we climbed that hill, can I just say, there are photos to prove it, and we came back, and we did not lose a man. We climbed a 500-foot hill, and we all came back together. Sometimes in life, the safety brief is necessary. I bet you can all remember a time at school. I haven't forgotten, there's a reading, by the way, in case you think I've forgotten the reading. We're getting to the reading. This is the preamble to the reading. Sometimes in school, there were things that you got to do for the first time, and you were just itching to do it. It was maybe a science experiment in chemistry. Okay, you're maybe getting to do a cool experiment that other folks in other classes had done it and said was awesome and you're going to love it. Or it was maybe the first time you got to try out a new piece of equipment in the gym or a new sport or maybe a new outward bound activity that you'd never done before. In life, there has been a time where you've wanted to do something really exciting and standing between you and this unknown adventure is a boring adult who wants to give you the safety brief. Someone who wants to talk you through it and tell you what's coming. And there are some people who listen intently, and there are some people who just talk to their friends because they assume someone else is listening intently, and then are some people who have no idea what's going on, and they're just out of it in another zone altogether. And maybe you are one of those three people, or another one that I haven't thought of. John chapters 13 to 17, if you like, and particularly this passage we're going to look at today, is, if you like, Jesus' safety brief. This is where Jesus, who knows what's coming and how risky and dangerous it's going to be, how much things are going to change, and it's never going to be the same from here on in. And this is not an experiment. This is for real. And everything that they thought they knew and understood that was safe and known for them as a little group of disciples with Jesus in the midst, everything's about to change, and Jesus is giving them the chat. So that when it happens, they'll at least have been a little bit prepared that actually God knew it was going to happen and it was going to be like this, because He always does So I'm going to read John chapter 14. Now we read, and I preached on some of it last week. I'm not going to double preach it. I'm just going to um, kind of segue on into the next little bit, but it's easier if we read the whole chapter. So either watch the screens, borrow a Bible, or read it if you've got one of your own on paper or um, electronics. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Believe me when I see that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show themselves to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, For the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Amen. And so the last safety brief, the set of instructions... With the promise, of course, as we read there at the end, because Jesus knows just as you and I know that when you got that safety brief and you didn't really know what it was that you were going to be doing, whether an experiment or a sport or an activity or whatever, you were partly so preoccupied or eager to get on that you didn't take it all in at the time. And later on, there would be things that you had been told clearly that you would have to remember and you would have to have somebody there to remind you. Not only did we climb a hill when we were away, but we shot arrows. Yes, we shot arrows. We did some archery. (laughs) And I listened carefully to the safety brief from Colin, who is quite clearly multi-talented because he can climb hills and shoot arrows. Bear Girls has nothing on Colin. And I listened carefully to the chat about the red rope that you weren't allowed to cross until he said so, and the yellow rope, which was the safe zone that we could stand in between and where you had to stand and place your feet and how far apart you had to put them. And which hand you had to bend down and pick your uh, bow up with. And which way you had to turn the arrow so that the white flight was facing upwards when you locked it in. And then you turned it round. And how to hold your arms and your shoulders and your back and everything. And point at the target and all the rest of it. And he told us all of that stuff. And then, well, I was going to say he let us loose. He did not. He carefully supervised us as we took our turns. And I kid you not, every single person needed Colin to remind them of what he had said. (laughs) Because we're a bit slow on the uptake, and God knows that. I'm not sure how much uh, dangerous uh, daredevil stuff you've done in your life. I have done next to none. None. Uh, I'm just not that kind of outdoorsy type. You can probably tell that by looking at me. But nonetheless, I have at times in my life been forced or required because I've been away with youth groups or groups like the one we were just away to do stuff. Probably one of my, uh, uh, was it scariest? I don't know. It felt scary at the time. We were away with a, a youth group and PGL Dal Guys. Uh, And we took these young people away on an activity week, and one of the things we had to do uh, was a high ropes course, which culminated in the trapeze. Yeah, have you ever done the trapeze? So basically, what you have to do is, you have to scale a telegraph pole. Quite literally, it's a telegraph pole in the ground on this site, which is probably about the height of the balcony there. So there's grips on the side, and so you, you get your harness on, and you get your ropes, and you get your helmet and everything, and you, you have to scale the telegraph pole. And when you get to the top of the telegraph pole, you have somehow to get up and to stand on the top of the telegraph pole. So if you can imagine the diameter of a telegraph pole, which is probably about that, so you have to stand on the telegraph pole, and there is nothing to hold on to. There's no grips, no handrail, nothing. You've just got to get up there, and you're standing on the top of a telegraph pole, and then from probably, oh, let's see, here to where May is, I would think, maybe a little bit closer, maybe Lewis, uh, there is uh, a trapeze. And basically, the deal is that you have to throw yourself off the telegraph pole and catch the trapeze, and then swing uh, on the trapeze, and then they, uh, they let you down after you've done that. It's terrifying. How many people think, yes, bring it on, that sounds fantastic to me, hands up, let's see a show of hands, okay, all right, now we're just getting a, a kind of reference point, how many people think, not in a million years would you get me up a telegraph pole, all right, okay, just draw a pole there, good, and anyway, I did it, I think I did it three, I did it three times or twice. That's really annoying, because actually once you've you've got up there and you've mastered it, and I did it twice, you're standing on top of the telegraph pole, and then you throw yourself off and try and catch the telegraph pole. And both times I caught the telegraph pole, but I never... Not the telegraph pole, sorry, the trapeze. (laughs) (laughs) Both times I caught the trapeze, but both times I've never mastered the art of holding on. You know, when the weight of your body... Follows through like you catch it, but then the weight of your body follows through and jerks you off. And you, and there's probably a technique, anyway. So both times I managed to grab the thing, but then, but then just lost it. Now, fortunately, in all of this, you are securely roped and harnessed, so that even when you let go of the trapeze, all that happens is you find yourself dangling there, in in mid-flight, like some crooked ballerina. You know, uh, and then they just gradually let you down to the ground and you can go and try it all over again. <laughs> but I tell you what, there's no way <laughs> I would attempt that. You know, sometimes I look at Cirque and these guys who do all the high wire stuff and I think, respect. <laughs> because we need and like to know that we're connected, Right? What are your strongest connections in life? And where where do they come from? The answer to that question is vastly different for different people because our life experiences are so different. Your strongest connections in this world may be your family. That's true for many people. It's not true for everybody. It might be your spouse, your partner. It might be your friends. It might be your community, the place where you've grown up, and less so nowadays, but there are still people uh, who are living in the place that they've lived in all of their days. It might be your workplace. It might be that it's your work and the people around you there that defines and gives you in a sense your identity, your sense of of who you are and where you belong and where the, the strongest bonds are. And we all have a sense of connection identity in this world to some degree or another, and some people are much more connected than others. For some people, life is a lonely, solitary existence, and they don't feel necessarily particularly connected anywhere. For these disciples, their strongest connection in the three years that had gone before this passage had come to be Jesus. They had all their other connections as well. We know that Peter was married because he had a mother-in-law. We know that there were family connections and community associations. We, We know that there was a whole backstory to each one of these disciples. But they had transferred their allegiance and their connection and their sense of community to Jesus in these three years that had gone before. And so for them, this talk that Jesus was engaging in about, about going away and preparing a place for them was potentially an alarming thought if they began to take it in. Because they really didn't know what Jesus was preparing them for. And yet what Jesus needed and wanted them to do was to fulfill the purpose of His coming for them. Who is Jesus. God come in human form. God come in a person of the one that seeing they could recognize and relate to. And most of the gospels spend an awful lot of time asking the question or wrestling with the question, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus because at one level, just a good man, a wise teacher, we know all the things that people to this day will still say about Jesus. And Judas, not Judas Iscariot, there was another Judas, said, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus wanted His disciples to understand that because they had believed in Jesus, because they had begun to see and recognize in Him that this was not just any good man, any wise rabbi, but that He was from God, then Jesus, as they were connected to Him, could do the most vital and important thing that He wanted to do for them and does for us as well, which is, to connect us to the Father. This whole passage is about being connected because a lot of people in life feel profoundly disconnected, feel isolated and alone and cut off. A lot of people's experiences have just taught them to survive to get by, to get through whatever way they can. And life in this world can be a solitary experience. It can be a a frustrating experience. It can be a disappointing experience. And above all, you know, I think, and you've heard me say this lots of times, but I believe it's the gospel, so I'm going to keep saying it. A lot of people live their lives as orphans. The orphan mentality. i never lived in an orphanage or been in care. I know some of you have. And there can be a mentality particularly in, you know, we can all, some of us, maybe the younger ones aren't old enough to remember, but those ones like me who didn't get invited to stand earlier on. But it's okay, I've forgiven you already. It's fine, Lewis. No? Those of us who are of a certain age can remember when Nicolae Ceaușescu and his wife were executed and Romania, the eyes of the world got to see into Romania and got to see images of vast orphanages full of abandoned children. Babies and toddlers in cots, some of them tied to the cots, sitting in their own mess, malnourished many of them just sucking their thumbs and just rocking for comfort endlessly because they were just starved. Not just starved of food, although they were, but starved of that which everybody is designed to need, which is loving connection. We were created to need loving connection. And much of our time and energy in life, we spend investing in trying to find that loving connection. We're supposed to find it in our families, but it doesn't always work out or work well. We're supposed to find it in our, in our grown-up relationships, but it doesn't always work out well or doesn't happen for some. We're supposed to find loving connection. But you see, sometimes when there isn't loving connection, then people become hardened on the inside, and they just do whatever it takes to survive for themselves at the expense of other people, which is how possibly, and I don't know if I'm saying nonsense, but I would contend that that's how a 25-year-old can drive a lorry with 39 people in the back and not care about their needs to the point that they suffocate to death, because they're a commodity through which he can make money. And something in that young man was not nurtured or has died or has become hardened or indifferent, or that which God created in him, because that young man is made in the image of God. But you see, he's not connected to the source. He's not plugged in to the Maker. And so something of what is supposed to make him fully human... What was it Jesus said, obey my commands? What were the commands? What were the commands that Jesus gave? The greatest of these. Love the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commands are to love. The greatest commands are to love. And so Jesus once Having gathered these people who have seen beyond the mere human, seen beyond the good man, seen beyond the wise rabbi, have now seen that this is God come amongst them. They don't have a full blown understanding, they don't have a, a developed theology yet of who Jesus is. And Jesus is saying, Right, now the next bit is that I'm going to connect you to the Father because the Father is greater than I because you were designed to be connected and reconnected, to be reconciled to the Father. Apart from climbing hills and shooting arrows, we spent quite a bit of time just meditating on the parable of the lost son. (laughs) I love the fact that Scripture is the gift that just keeps on giving, you know, and that you see things sometimes that you hadn't seen And and the guys were all reflecting in different ways on different parts of the story, and I was just caught by the bit. In fact, let me just read it to you. Caught by the bit in the story where the young man spends a long time on his journey home rehearsing his mantra, where he'd come to his senses, and he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, we know he went to a distant country, and we know that he resolved to say those words to his father when he got back. And the next bit of the story that we read is that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And I had this mental picture of this father outrageously humiliating and humbling himself for the sake of this stinking son who was still a long way off, and the father who would never run was running to get his son back. And holding his son… In the most passionate embrace. It was either in the context of that embrace or or just at the point where he released him that the boy said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I got to thinking You know, the evidence ought to have been there for the boy, right? No slap from the back of the hand, no shouting. No rage, no pointing fingers, the most all-embracing embrace it was possible to receive. And somewhere from within, the folds of his father's passionate embrace for his returning son, the boy is saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Mismatch. You have the evidence, right? This is the evidence. This is the evidence of the love of the Father. And yet this boy had trammeled in his brain circuitry a thought pattern that said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Two bits of evidence. One the rut in his head, the other an outrageous, warm, engulfing embrace from the Father. Which bit of evidence was reliable? And it made me think, well, it made me think about myself. It made me think about my own relationship with God and how I, and therefore I assume you, because we're not all that different from each other, really, are we? Probably spend quite a lot of time thinking and living in ways that say, I am not worthy to be your daughter or your son. I'll be your hired servant. I'll work for you. Work really hard. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. But you see, the father just loved the Son, just embraced the Son, just gave to the Son with outrageous generosity and forgiveness because He was His Son. And Jesus told that story to illustrate God's passionate determination to love you just because you're you just because you're made in His image, because He has no mistakes and no cast-offs and no second or third or fourth-rate kids. And Jesus was very careful in this passage to make sure the disciples understood, I came so that you could see and recognize me. It was an easy on-ramp for you to, to see in me another human, something of the Father revealed and to see through the signs, and to see through the acts of compassion, and to see and hear through the teaching about the Father, that something of what the Father is like. And then Philip, who, who hasn't made the leap or the connection, says, okay, Jesus, show us the Father. <laughs> he's, he's, the Father's different, right? The Father's other, right? The Father's the angry Old Testament God who smites and strikes. And Philip said, don't you know me? (laughs) You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've come to make the introduction, to be the connection. I've come so that if you believe in me and keep my commands to love and be loved then you will be connected. You will be connected to the Father. You are. Believe me when I say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe in the evidence of the works. Whoever believes in me will do the works I am doing and they will do greater things than these because I am going to the Father. God's invitation to you is to be profoundly connected. To be profoundly connected. And if you feel or have felt disconnected in this life or in the network of relationships, if they don't satisfy despite the abundance of them, and they won't because people will never meet your deepest needs, then that's because Jesus needs you to know connection to the Father And then he introduces them to the bit that's going to come next, which is, I'm going to cement the connection to the Father, and we're going to send the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a whole theological debate about whether the Spirit proceeds from the Father or the Son or both, but you don't want to know about the filioque laws, do you? No, see. But we're going to send our Spirit, so that we will live in you, and you will be in us. I would never want to jump off a telegraph pole without a harness on or ropes. I would never want to let a bunch of guys loose with, with bows and arrows without a safety brief and somebody there to remind them of how to not kill people. You see, we need the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit, because He is the one who connects us. He's the one who inspired this Word that feeds us. He's the one who breathes on us so that it finds a landing place. He's the one who gives us the power. He is the one who enables us to love. He is the one who restores our hope and our courage and our confidence when it seems like everything else is just going wrong. And I suppose really all I'm wanting to do here today is to ask those of you that don't yet know that connection and to say to you absolutely, Jesus wants you to be connected to the Father. He wants you to come home and is willing to connect you. And that Jesus is willing to send His Holy Spirit into your life to fill you with the truth and the fullness of who He is. And if you're getting by with your gifts and your resources and your abilities and the things that you can do in life and making a very good job of it one way or another, well, beware and be careful. Because these are gifts that have been given, and you have abilities, but do not let your abilities delude you into thinking that you do not absolutely, utterly, and profoundly need the fullness that only the Spirit can give, that only Jesus can bring. You know, when we come to church, we can put on a good show. Food's good, music's good, lights are good, looks good. Done a nice job for Jesus. He must be so pleased. I'm not mocking. But you know, if we can come and go and feel we did a good thing today for Jesus, we have missed it. Because I hope we come here saying, Lord, I need you. (laughs) I need you and you. I need your forgiveness, Lord. I need to be reminded of your outrageous loving mercy. I need to know that it doesn't depend on me getting it right or trying super hard. It depends on me believing the love of the Father expressed through the death of Jesus for you and for me. I need to know your power and your fullness I will not leave you as orphans. See, this world is full of orphans, not just the literal ones, not just the ones that have been through the care system or are in it. But this world is full of orphans, of people making their own way and who do not know or even want the love of the Father who longs for them. And so, Jesus' promise is His peace, is His life, is His connection to the Father, which will never be broken or taken away or undermined. And that even though Jesus knew the prince of this world was coming because Judas Iscariot was already on his way to do his dirty deed, Even though the prince of this world was coming, even though the prince of this world has come, Jesus promised to you his peace to be connected and to stay connected. This world is increasingly at its own throat. You don't have to dig too far on the website. To see division in Catalan, division and anxiety in Hong Kong, to see war in northern Syria, poverty in Yemen, protests in Chile, unrest in the United States, Brexit, on and on and on it goes, separatism, division, civil war and unrest. She, underneath all of these, there's a common theme, which is division and divisiveness. I was speaking uh, yesterday with somebody who works for the diplomatic service, he works from the Foreign Office. He's currently in a city in Europe, quite a high level ambassador. Well, he's not an ambassador, but he's second to. And so he's involved in diplomatic relations with representatives from the US and other countries. And interestingly, his, his wife works in an organization that uh, um, limits nuclear testing or, or, or tries to promote a, 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 an agreement that about 183 of the 192 nations of the world have signed, agreeing not, uh, to, to not pursue any more nuclear testing. And it's quite interesting to hear of the countries that are not signatories, the U.S., China, India, Pakistan, some of the big nations of the world, for all sorts of reasons. Suspicion, division, whether it be marches on the streets, whether it be high-level ambassadors not seeing eye to eye, you know, everywhere, because the prince of this world loves division, loves hostility, loves to set people against one another, loves to make people suspicious of one another or fearful of one another or angry with one another. And the gospel of God's grace is of a father who comes to reconnect us to him through his son, to give us the spirit through which we are able to trust in his peace, to love one another, and to show a different reality made possible only through Jesus. But you have to let that into your life. You have to believe that you're loved and wanted. You're not an orphan because Jesus says so. You have to lay down your trying and striving, and you actually just have to allow yourself to be embraced without coming up a speech that says, I'm not good enough to be called your daughter or your son. It's actually not as straightforward as we think. It's beautifully simple, and yet sometimes one of the most challenging things that we will ever be called on to do is to believe that God loves you. I know I bang on about it week after week, but there's a reason for that.